Alrighty, everyone. If you've got a Bible, open it up to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians 12. Um, as we did last week, uh, we're going to continue in a study on the church. And uh, I was telling the team earlier, it might not be the most, you know, exciting most marketable series we've ever done, but as we talk about our church, as we talk about where we're headed as a church family, um, it might be one of the most significant, and I'm not, you know, tooting my own horn necessarily, um, but I do think it's significant to where we're headed as a church, what we're talking about, um, that before we plant a church, we need to define what a church is, and uh, we started that last week. If you missed it, I'll give you a quick review, but I'd love for you, um, especially if you're a family member here at High Point Carterville, to go back and listen to that just to know what was communicated, um, to know kind of where we started this study, and um, you can keep up with us there. Um, you can search High Point Carnival and wherever you find your podcast, and you can listen to the message there, and you can speed me up so you get done sooner. Um, as you're turning to 1 Corinthians 12, I do want to remind you of a couple things that Jeff mentioned. Uh, one of those is, like he said, um, this is an incredible family devotional. Um, if you've got young kids, um, we'd love for you to grab one of these. We got enough for one per family. Um, if we run out, don't just, you know, say, oh, I'm out of luck. Like, go to next step. Say, hey, we ran out. We'll order some more. We'll have them next week. Um, but as Advent begins, um, and it'll start December the 1st, most Advent studies do, uh, we'd love for you to take this and provide a family devotional time for you and your children. Uh, we always push and prioritize family discipleship here. And um, all of the dads that I have talked to um, in the life of our church, um, have there, there's never been an issue of, hey, I just don't want to do this. I just don't want to, to be a spiritual leader for my children. Um, most of the time it's, hey, I just don't know where to start. I just don't know how to begin. And this is a great place to begin. Christmas season brings lots of traditions, and so it's, it's not going to feel strange to your child to say, hey, we're going to add another tradition to our list of traditions for Christmas, and we're going to start going through the scriptures together and going through this devotional together. And uh, it's got lots of crafts. Um, so the red books are for you. There's one green one at the table in the lobby. Um, that is kind of the craft book. You can pick it up and look through it, but please don't take it. Um, if you want to order one for yourself, you totally can, but we wanted to make sure you got the devotional in your hands. Um, and then I would say, even if you have teenagers, you might not do the crafts with them, but the content in here is great. Um, and then this is for the rest of us, um, those of us that are older, those of us like my wife and I that don't have children just yet. Um, you saw, Jeff mentioned the QR code. Um, there's two devotionals there that the QR code will get you to. Um, one by John Piper called Good News of Great Joy. Um, it is a free book. Um, not the, the physical copy, but there's a PDF online that you can download for free, and there's a Kindle version online that you can download for free. And I would love, I can't make you, you know, I can't force you, but I would absolutely love if our church, starting on December 1st, if we were all reading the same thing as we prepared our hearts um, to celebrate Christ's coming this Christmas. Um, this is a solid devotional. It's great. It's not over anyone's head, um, but it would be awesome for us to to be reading this together, and you can text me, call me, observations, questions, whatever. Um, I would love to, to engage in this with you, um, but it's free. If you scan the QR code, you can download the PDF, or if you want to spend some money, you can buy the physical book, whichever you prefer. So uh, let me pray, and then uh, we'll jump into uh, to our study again this morning. Um, Father, we love you. God, I pray. 
um, that as we talk about the church, God, as we talk about this group, um, it truly is a people like no other. Um, God, there is nothing on this earth um, like your church. It is almost as if someone who is not of this world uh, created it. Um, so, God, we are grateful um, for the privilege to be a part of it. Um, God, that it is not because of anything that we've done. It is all because of what you've done in our place through your son. God, he lived the life that we could never live. He died the death um, that all of us deserve to die. He took my cross. And, uh, Father, he has given me his holiness and his righteousness um, through faith in him, through repentance and faith. I can have all of the righteousness of Christ, and he can take all of my sin and pay for it and defeat it. Um, so, Father, what a privilege. Um, God, you are uniting people to yourself, and in doing that, um, you unite us to one another. And you create this incredible institution called the church. Um, and, God, there truly is nothing like it. So as we study it and as we talk about it, God, help us to, to look at all of this from a place of gratitude for what you've done. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, many of you know the story. Um, in 1961, the Green Bay Packers had just lost the uh, NFL championship to the Eagles, and they blew a lead in the fourth quarter. And uh, soon after, their coach, Vince Lombardi, walks into training camp, and he holds up a football, and he says, gentlemen, this is a football. And he starts from square one, right? We didn't do what we thought we were going to do. We've, we've lost our way. We're going to start with square one. I'm going to hold up a football, and we're going to spend training camp just talking about what a football is, right? We are starting from the very basics. And the players responded and began to joke, like, hey, slow down, coach. Like, you're moving too fast. You're saying too much. And what Vince Lombardi proceeded to do is spent most of his training camp saying, we are getting back to the basics. We're getting back to the fundamentals of what a football is, of blocking and tackling. And six months later, the Green Bay Packers would go on to win the Super Bowl, 37 to nothing against the Giants, and they would never lose a playoff game after that. Um, and obviously, the, you know, the NFL championship trophies named after him and all of those things, um, they would win five of the next seven NFL championships, and it goes on to be a great story and all of those things. Um, and I tell you that because, one, part of me hesitated to tell you that because I didn't want you to think that as we do this study, um, that we're going to just start winning in whatever your version of winning is. Um, the, the goal is that not that we, we say these things and, and so that we'll win, um, but the goal is that, hey, as we think about and define what a church is biblically, um, we want to get back to whatever scripture says. We want to get back to the basics. We don't want to define our, set, our success according to the world. Um, we are choosing to define success as a church as to how biblically faithful can we be. Not how many butts are in the seats, not how many dollars are in the bank, but how biblical can we be? How, can, how faithful can we be to all that the scriptures say a church is and does? And uh, we started that last week. Um, I don't want you to think, like I said, I'm your coach or like we're trying to secretly, you know, do this attendance boost kind of thing. Um, God is sovereign over all of those things. We just want to be biblically faithful. And last week we started the study of ecclesiology. Um, ecclesiology is just the study of the church. Um, if you're a guest with us, typically we pick a passage and we just walk right through it, a word at a time, a verse at a time, and we're going to jump back into that as soon as this series is over. Uh, we got one more week of this. Um, next week, we're going to look at the marks of a healthy church, so I'd love for you to come back. Um, like I said, we'll be, or like Jeff said, we'll be all in here at 10 o'clock with our um, family service, so we'd love for you to join us after Thanksgiving, and um, we can uh, look at those together. But 
we started looking at the study of the church, um, ecclesiology. That word uh, comes from the Greek word that means church. It's ecclesia. Um, And we talked about last week that it just means the called out ones. Um, It means the, the assembly of the called out ones. It's those that have been called out by God out of darkness into marvelous light. They've been saved by his grace. They've been adopted into his family. They've been sealed and marked by his Holy Spirit. Um, But they have been called out from the world, and they are united to Christ. They are the called out ones, the assembly. Um, And we define the church as the people of God for all ages. If you look at the universal church, what is just the church? It is all Christians for all time. That's the church. That the way to become a member of the universal church is you are saved by God's grace. You become a Christian, and then you are brought into the church the family of God, the bride of Christ, the body of Christ. Um, a lot of these metaphors we're actually going to look at this morning um, to help us give some shape to what the church is and does. Um, but we looked at uh, the purpose of the church last week. That the purpose of the church, uh, purposes of the church is one, um, to make disciples for sure. Um, the second that we looked at is to proclaim the gospel. We also looked at um, the idea of protecting the gospel. And then fourthly, um, we looked at displaying the gospel. Um, that the way that our church family loves one another would put the gospel on display to the world. That the way we forgive one another, the way we encourage one another, um, the way that our love covers a multitude of sins as we um, shepherd and care and encourage and forgive and show grace and mercy to one another, that the world that does not operate this way They would say, hey, nobody in my life forgives the way you forgive. Nobody in my life is generous the way that you're generous. Would look at the church and see the gospel on display. That they would see, according to Ephesians 3, that God is uniting people in Christ. God is uniting people to himself. And in doing that, he's uniting people to one another. That the way that we intentionally love one another would put the gospel on display to the world. Um, We also learned that the church is universal, as I've mentioned already. Um, That it is a group of people who have been called out by God um, that will one day be from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That the church will consist of, in heaven, it will consist of every people group that has ever existed on the face of the earth. That there will at least be one from every tribe, tongue, and nation bowing at the throne, praising our heavenly Father in heaven. Um, that's the mission of the church, is, is to get this gospel message to the ends of the earth. It's, it's the commission Jesus gave his disciples before he ascended into heaven, that they would take this gospel message to the ends of the earth. And Jesus promises us in the gospels, in Matthew, he says the gospel will go to the ends of the earth. It will reach every people group, and then the end will come. That the end's not coming until every people group, every ethnos, has heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is glorious to think about. Um, But it's this universal group of people, but it is also local. There are also local groups, local gatherings, local assemblies of people who are being and doing all that a church is and does. And what's so fascinating about this and why we need to do this study is because there's even people in Carterville that are not a part of the same local church, but they're also a part of the same universal church. There's one universal church, but there are even people in our own town that are a part of different local churches. So what does that mean? There's people in Germantown that are a part of different local churches. So how do these churches function? How do we know who we're called to love and to shepherd and to care for? How, how do we know who we are called to, to practice all of the one another's of scripture with? 
And uh, someone came to me last week and said, hey, can you give me like a list or an example of the one another's? And uh, so I grabbed one. It's not going to be pretty on the slide, but we've got a picture of all of the one another's. Um, hopefully, you know, you can put your binoculars on and check it out. But these are just some of them in the positive, right, to submit to one another, uh, to consider others better than yourselves, to look to the interests of others, um, to serve one another, submit to one another, admonish one another, confess your sins to one another. So you see a big list of those, and then we've got a couple in the negative, uh, to not lie to one another, to not pass judgment on one another. Um, these are all straight from the scriptures. And as we said last week, um, that every single one of these was given in the context of the local church. That there are verses, and many of which we looked at last week, that refer to the universal church. And we looked at four or five of those, but 80% of the time that the church is mentioned in the New Testament, it is referring to local gatherings, local bodies of believers. And we talked about the idea last week of how are we going to do any of those things if we don't know one another? If we don't do the work to, to get to know each other, to do life with one another, to know each other's names, if this is just a place where you come and check a box and get your religious you know, talk for the week, but you don't know anyone around you, we don't do life with one another, we don't break bread with one another, we don't work to, to build relationships with one another, then how are we going to do any of these things? We can't obey the New Testament if we don't structure our church in a way that you know one another. And one of the concerns I gave last week as we started this study is this whole series is going to fly directly in the face of this American individualism, this Western idea of I can grow on my own and I can live my Christian life on my own and I don't need anybody. People hold me back. People, you know, inconvenience me. People slow me down. I like my stuff when I want it. I like things on demand. I like to opt into things and opt out of things when I want to. This series, and again, this study today is going to fly directly in the face of that. Because we all need these things. Can we put the positive ones back up there? You need these things. You need every single one of those. And you can't do those with yourself. You were created to be a part and belong to a group of people. You were made to belong. And all of us need people in our lives to keep us from sin and to keep us from ourselves. I am not sovereign. My intentions are not always pure. My heart default setting is to wander, is to pursue my own glory, is to get mine, is to do what I want. I need people in my life to do these things with me, to encourage me, to rebuke me when I'm straying away, to pray for me, to, to meet my needs and carry my burdens when I can't carry them alone. That we all eventually are going to walk through something that you just can't navigate alone. And God has created you and, and wired you and created the church to be this group of people that you can belong to. But the question is, okay, if, if these are the commands that we are to, to obey, how do we know who we do those with, right? Do we do this universally with all believers for all time? If I have to confess my sins to all believers everywhere, then we better get the mailer out, right? We gotta start sending it over to Asia and to Europe and make sure the believers know that I'm really selfish, Right? How do we know who to, to do and practice all of these one another's with? Do I need to be confessing my sins to all Christians everywhere? Do I need to be submitting to Christians in Arkansas? Do I need to be regularly encouraging Christians in Germantown? How do I know who is a part of my church? And today what we're going to do is we're going to double click on the local aspect of the church. We're going to double click on it. We're going to 
really dive in and study it um, because, as I said, 80% of the times that the church is mentioned in the Bible, it's referring to the local church. And what makes a local church is a commitment. It is a group of people who have committed to one another. This is why all over the U.S. churches have church covenants, where if you want to join a church, you are covenanting or committing to do all of these things with one another, to love one another, to care for one another, to serve one another. Um, You are making a commitment, much like me and my wife. When I looked at her and I made a commitment to her and said, I am going to love you differently than I love everybody else, which... Ironically, it was a year ago today. We celebrated our one-year anniversary today. Um, When I looked at her and made a commitment, made a promise that I'm going to love you differently than I love everyone else. Now, the church, I want to give you a caveat here. This metaphor breaks down eventually uh, between, you know, a human marriage and the church. But the church is much, very much like that. It is a group of Christians who have covenanted or committed to being and doing all that a church is and does, to practice all of the one another's, to love one another and serve one another. It is a group of people who have committed to being involved in one another's lives. So that being said, if you are adamantly against being known and someone being involved in your life, you might not need to be a member of this church because I'm just telling you where we're headed. And it doesn't mean that every minute of every day somebody's going to be up in your business or anything like that. But no, we are created and called to be a part of one another. I need you in my life. I need your encouragement. I need your prayers. I need your help. I need your wisdom because I'm foolish. That I need the body of Christ in my life. And what makes us a church is it is a group of Christians in this town who have committed and covenanted to be and to do with one another all that a church is and does. Does that make sense? And we see examples of this all throughout the text. But as I am committed to you in a way that is different than I'm committed to other Christians around the world. When I travel to Guatemala and we go see Christians there, There's a familial aspect to it because we are serving the same God. We are brothers and sisters in Christ, all of those things. But my commitment to a church in Guatemala is very different than my commitment to you because I have not committed to love them the way I've committed to love you and serve them the way I've committed to serve you and bear their burdens the way I've committed to do those with you and confess my sins to them the way I've committed to do that with you. Does that make sense? That we have a different relationship because we are specifically, we have committed to be in covenant relationship with one another. And our church will have a church covenant. And it's not to be legalistic. It's not to be weird. We're not going to call you and say, hey, you're not fulfilling the covenant. No. But it is a reminder for all of us that we have committed to being and doing with one another all that a church is and does because we need this. We need people in our lives to keep us from sin and to keep us from ourselves. And we looked at many examples last week. We looked at the church in Philippi, that there were all the saints in Christ, but specifically those who are assembling together and committed to one another at Philippi. We saw in Galatia that the region of Galatia had multiple churches mentioned in Galatians 1 within that same region. So it's multiple pockets of people in a region that have committed to do and to be all that a church is and does. Paul doesn't refer to each of them as part of the church. He calls them all individual 
churches. Each one of those churches is made up of believers who have committed to one another. We also see in Scripture, if you look at Philippians 1, just the introduction in verse 1, that each of these individual churches had overseers and deacons. If you look at Philippians 1, verse 1, it says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, right? So the saints who are gathering together in Philippi along with the overseers and the deacons there. That each of these churches had overseers, they had shepherds, they had elders, they had deacons, that they had structure to them. And Paul's writing this letter to them. Hey, I'm writing to the believers and to your overseers. Here's my encouragement to you. Here's my warning to you. Here's my commands to you as an apostle that Paul is writing this letter to a specific church. Um, in Acts 15, we see a lot of this happen just all throughout the chapter. That essentially what happened in Acts 15, without reading it, is um, there was these group of Jewish believers who were coming to Gentile churches and telling them that they had to be circumcised in order to follow Jesus, that they had to follow the Old Testament law, which would make sense for um, an Old Testament um, Jew who now is converted to Christianity. Um, he got circumcised. He followed the Jewish um, law, and Jesus grew up Jewish, and he followed that same law, and they got confused on the fact that we're all saved by grace and we're no longer bound by the law. But they start telling these Gentile churches, hey, You've got to get circumcised. And Paul and Barnabas don't want to have anything about it. And they start debating them. Um, and scripture says it gets pretty heated. What happens? They decide, okay, we're going to gather with the church at Jerusalem. We're going to gather with these, this specific church that grew up Jewish, converted to follow Jesus. And we're going to talk with them. We're going to get the apostles involved. And we're going to have this meeting. And what they decide is Peter speaks up in the meeting and says, look, guys, why in the world would we make them follow the law when we couldn't follow it to begin with? Like, why are we going to put a burden on these Gentile believers that we couldn't even bear? And he reminds them, no, they are saved by the same grace that we are saved. We couldn't obey the law, so we're not going to put the law on them. Both of us are saved by grace. And we're going to send a letter to these Gentile churches, and we're going to tell them what we've decided, but we're also going to tell them to be considerate of our Jewish customs because we've grown up with them our whole lives. And Acts 15 ends with Paul and Silas taking these letters to the Gentile churches, to these, each, these individual bodies of believers who have committed to, to being with one another and doing all that a church is and does, and they send them these letters. But we see examples of this all over the text. But the natural resistance is going to be why, right? I can grow on my own. I can watch a sermon on my own. I can worship in my car. There's great preachers all over the world, right? I can pull up a pastor in another state. He preaches better than Parker. I can listen to it every week, and I'm fine. I'm growing by myself. I'm worshiping, you know, to some tracks in my car. I'm good, the problem with all of those things is you've missed the people entirely. Remember, the church is not a building. The church is a group of people, and you and I need people in our lives. We need other believers to keep us from sin and to keep us from ourselves. And you can't do that in your car, and I would go as far as to say you can't do that worshiping online. You're missing the entire group of people. You might be getting the information and the teaching, and that's fine and that's helpful, but if in your theological assessment of church, if, you, if that's church for you, then you're missing it. Then we're deceiving you. If you think you can be the church by yourself, by definition, it is a group of people. 
called together to be and do all that a church is and does. Does that make sense? And God has commanded us to do this. Much like in the book of Romans, um, Paul says that we have been declared righteous, right? If you put your faith in Jesus, you are declared righteous. And then he says, now pursue righteousness, right? By faith, God has made you righteous. You didn't do anything. You didn't earn it. You put your faith in Jesus' finished work, and God looks at you and declares you righteous. It's the doctrine of justification. But he puts a spirit in you, and now he says, pursue righteousness with your life. And Paul would argue that, hey, if you're not pursuing righteousness, then I would wonder if you've ever been declared righteous. If there's nothing in you that wants to to live a holy life unto the Lord, and it doesn't mean you're perfect, but you strive to obey him and to be like him and to follow him and to to learn more about him in his word, if if you aren't struggling and stumbling to try to, to be more righteous, then I would question if you've ever been declared righteous. Same thing with the church. God has made you and adopted you into his family when you put your faith in him. And if there is no desire in your heart to be around the family of God, then I would question if you've ever been made a part of the family. I think the same principle applies. That if you can can live your Christian life separated from the family of God, as imperfect as we are, but you think you are self-sufficient enough and spiritually mature enough where you can do this whole Christian thing on your own, then I would call into question your love for the the bride or the body of Christ if you have no desire to be around them. Does that make sense? It is a group of people committed to being and doing all that a church is and does, but then the next objection would be, well, why do we have to be members, right? Why do we need to be members of a church? That sounds so foreign. That sounds old school. It sounds like I'm joining a country club. Um, It seems very country club. And I would say this. Let's, let's kill the country club mentality. Um, joining a church is actually the opposite of joining a country club. Joining a country club is you pay your money and everyone serves you. Um, joining a church is you also commit to give money and then you serve everyone around you as they serve you. But look at the one another's. We had the list up on the screen. Joining a church is committing to being and doing all of those things. It's not a commitment to just sit back and kick your feet up and just receive. And, and the church and the staff, they just do whatever I want and they're at my beck and call. No, it is, it is you as a, an individual saying, I'm committing to this group of people, as imperfect as they are and as imperfect as I am, because I need them. And we'll see biblically that we all need each other, that Paul's going to say explicitly in 1 Corinthians 12 that we cannot say, you biblically cannot say you have no need for the believers around you. And he's gonna tell us why in just a minute. But some of you are like, yeah, but the the, the whole church membership concept is not in the Bible. Um, And I'll give you that. The phrase is not in the Bible. You don't see Peter going and saying, hey, now fill out this form and you'll become a member of the church. But the practice of church membership is all throughout the church if you have eyes to see it and if you look at it. If you think about it, in Matthew 18, when Jesus says, if your brother has sinned against you, many of you know the passage Um, He says, if your brother sinned against you, um, go to your brother and tell him his fault. And if he doesn't listen, get a couple of brothers, a couple of believers, and then go and approach them again. And if he doesn't listen again, what does he say? He says, tell it to the church. What does he mean by that? Tell it to all believers everywhere? Hey, this person's sinning, and they're not repenting. No. 
What does he say? He says there's a group of people who have committed for that person who has fallen into sin to be and to do and to love and to care and to restore and to shepherd and correct. They've committed to doing that for him, and you go tell those people so that we can restore this brother back to right fellowship with the Lord and with us. That there is a specific group of people who have committed to be around this brother who has fallen into sin, and you get involved when other people and other believers have stumbled into sin. And what happens if he doesn't? What does Jesus say? He says, eventually, remove him. Treat him as a Gentile and a tax collector. And if we were to remove somebody, the implication is he had to, at some point, be included into the membership for us to one day remove him, right? That it's, it's there. 1 Corinthians 5, there's this man who's stumbled into sexual immorality, unrepentant, and Paul says, remove him from among you. And the implication there is that at one point he was included to the point where even Paul, as he's a traveling missionary, knows that this brother is a member of this local church. And he says, hey, you've tried, you've tried to restore, he's not listening, get him out of there. Because if he is okay with sin, I would call into question if he even knows the Lord. Because it's his sin that put him on the cross. And if he will willingly keep entertaining sin and going after that sin, as brothers and sisters are, are bringing it to his mind and trying to restore him, then Paul says, get him out. But the implication is at one point he was included. Does that make sense? So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at just a couple of metaphors. Not all of them. Like I said, this series isn't exhaustive, but we're going to look at a couple metaphors of what the church is, and uh, we're going to see through these metaphors, just how it's intended to function, how we as a group of believers who have committed to one another, how we're supposed to function and live um, with one another. So the first one is in 1 Corinthians 12. Um, it's a body. Um, Jesus refers to the church as a body. And it's not just in 1 Corinthians. Let me give you just a couple of other examples. And uh, as I mentioned, as we fly through these, if you want the notes, I'll airdrop them to you before you leave. Um, don't miss what I'm saying because you're trying to write. But... I'm not going to tell the, the note takers to not write. Um, just not going to do it. So um, here's an example in Ephesians 1, referring to the church. Uh, verse 22, it says that he put all things under his feet and gave him, Jesus, as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and is in all. Colossians 1, he is the head of the body, the church, and the, the most Broad example of this, the most specific and detailed example of this is in 1 Corinthians 12. And I want you to see this. Um, starting in verse 4, Paul says there's a, a variety of gifts. He's talking about spiritual gifts, but they all come from the same spirit. There's a variety of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all and everyone to each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. So Paul says, hey, if you're in Christ... The Holy Spirit has given you gifts. He has manifested himself in your life in some way, and it is for the common good of the body, that your spiritual gifts aren't just for you, that they are for the good of the body, and he's going to tell us why. 1 Peter 4 says the same thing, is, as each of you has received a gift, use it to serve others. That's what they were given to you for. But Paul goes on in verse 8, he says, For to one is given through the Spirit utterance of wisdom. He just gives examples of the gifts. And to another, utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing. To another, working of miracles. To another, prophecy. Another, to uh, the ability to distinguish between spirits. 
Various kinds of tongues, interpretation of tongues. Verse 11, all these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each individually as he wills. That our God gives the spiritual gifts to believers as he wills, according to his sovereign plan. You don't choose them. We're not teaching you spiritual gifts. We're not teaching you different things. That the Holy Spirit, when you are in Christ, he gives believers gifts according to his will, in his plan, in his pleasure. He's sovereign over the gifts that he's brought to this group of believers who have committed to one another. God is sovereign over the gifts that he's brought to our church. But every single person in our church, if you are in Christ, you've been given gifts by the Spirit. And the list we just read isn't all the gifts. There's much more gifts that we'll get into um, on another time. But he says this in verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. So it is with the church. That we have people, different members, different gifts, but they all make up one body. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we're all made to drink of one spirit. For the body doesn't consist of one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. 36 times in this passage, God mentions either a part or a member of a body. That when you and I, we are united to Christ, that all of us being united to Christ means that we are united to one another. We are united into the body of Christ, and each of us have gifts to serve the body to serve for the common good of the body. And Paul says, just because you don't have the gifts that other people have, you have no right to say that I don't belong here. If you're in Christ, you have gifts and we need to use them. And when I say this, I'm talking about in our lives with one another. I'm not talking about the building. I'm not talking about serving in a serve role. There's a time and a place for that. But what I'm talking about is us living with one another. That I need your prayers. That some of you are so much more gifted when it comes to craftsmanship than I am. My father and I have been trying to hang doors for two weeks, and two preachers trying to mount some doors it should be a reality show, right? It just doesn't work. But what has God given us? He's given us us, that I don't have all the gifts. The Holy Spirit's given me a gift, maybe. He's given me some gifts. I know biblically he's at least given me one. But I don't have all the gifts. You don't have all the gifts, and I need you. One of the greatest gifts that God has given us is us. That what's beautiful about the church is when we gather, it is all of the gifts, according to God's sovereign will and plan, come together. And those that are gifted in prayer are praying for the body. And those that are gifted in hospitality are showing hospitality to the members of this body. And those who are gifted in service are serving one another. Not even on Sundays. I'm talking about Monday through Saturday. That those who have the gift of faith are believing and praying for things for this body. That when we all come together, you get to see the, the full measure of the gifts on display. And you have gifts that I need to experience. 
I can't be all, according to this passage, I can't be all that I was meant to be under God without you, without the body of believers, without the church. You have so many gifts that I don't have, and I don't get to experience them unless we are doing life with one another. When I can see the way you pray, and I can see your faith, and I can see the way that you have discernment and wisdom, when I can see the way that you are not afraid as a people pleaser like I am to rebuke me and call me out and correct me, I need that in my life. And Paul is showing us that the gifts are on display, and he says, you can't say you don't belong. You have a gift. And then he ends with the I can't say to the hand, here it is, I have no need of you. We cannot say to another believer, we don't need you in our lives. We have no need. No, they have gifts that you and I need. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think are less honorable, we bestow the greater honor on our unpresentable parts or treated with greater modesty which are more presentable parts do not require, but God has composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there be, may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. This is why the church is so beautiful. Even those gifts that don't seem glamorous, that don't seem as presentable, God says, unless that person is there, then we don't get to experience the gifts. So he has elevated even those gifts. That everybody in here, whether you think your gift is big, small, public, private, whatever it is, this group of individuals, we need it. We need you to be in our lives. We need you to commit to us and love and serve and carry burdens and reach out and pray and all of those things with one another. Otherwise, what are we doing? We're gathering together with people we don't know. We're here in the Bible and we're going back home to our lives. And we might ease our conscience spiritually, but we're not living and acting and being a church. Because a church is a group of people who have committed to one another, to be in each other's lives, and to use our gifts to serve one another so that we will all persevere in our walk with Jesus Christ until the end. That I need your gifts to keep me from myself and to keep me from sin. And Paul says this is exactly how Jesus Christ has designed the body. The entire body benefits when all of the members are using their gifts to serve the body. And like I said, I'm just talking about relationally. I'm not even talking about holding doors and serving in a server on a Sunday. I'm talking about the way we live our lives Monday to Saturday. That we're a family of believers who use our gifts to serve one another. And I would venture to say this. That if the church doesn't do the work to get to know the body and doesn't do the work to make sure that the body knows one another, it will suffer. Because although we might not say we don't need you, we're structuring our church and acting like we don't need you because if we knew we need you, we would pursue you and get to know you because we do need you and we need your gifts. And we can't call on you or reach out to you if we don't know who you are. And there are so many churches who haven't done the work and I say this as a church that's beginning to do the work. We haven't figured this whole thing out, but haven't done the work to get to know their body. So what happens? When there's a need in the body, we don't know who to call and ask. We don't know your names. We don't know who's got the gifts that we need to meet this need. Just like your human body, when there's a need, when it's suffering, what does your body do? All the members of your body go to, to fix the wound. And when there's a wound in this body, when there's someone suffering, when there's someone mourning, when there's a need, if we haven't done the work to get to know the body, then what do we do? Our only resort is to go find someone that we can pay to meet the need. 
And then we've created a bigger problem because now we've got large staff and we haven't gotten to know the body. And if we would do the hard work to get to know the body, we'd know who to call when there's a need. And the body could use their gifts to serve one another. And oftentimes we rob you of opportunities to serve. If there's one thing I've learned in the year of being the pastor of this church is that our people are willing to help. So many of you are willing to jump in. We've just done a terrible job of getting to know you and making sure you, want, you know one another and having a system where we can communicate the needs. Every time I've reached out to a member of our body with a need, they're on it instantly. But if we don't do the hard work to make sure that we know the body and the body knows one another, then we can't reach out and ask you for help. So I'm not saying like you haven't been a willing church or a generous church. No, everyone I've talked to is willing. But historically, we just haven't done the hard work to get to know the body and to make sure that the body knows one another so that when there is a need, the body, just as your human body does, the members just jump in and meet the need. Does that make sense? If one body, one member suffers, verse 26, we all suffer together. If one member is honored, we all rejoice together. You're a part of the body, or you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So we spent a lot of time on body. The other ones, we're going to move much quicker. But that is one metaphor of the church. Another one that Jesus uses is that the church is a flock where he is the shepherd, John 10. He's the good shepherd, lays down his life for the sheep. A couple verses later, he knows his sheep and they know him. Just as the father knows the son, Jesus lays down his life for the sheep. Hebrews 13, may the God of peace who brought you again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. Jesus is the shepherd Hear me, I'm not the great shepherd, I'm not the chief shepherd, Jesus is the shepherd. You as this church, you don't belong to me, you're not at my beck and call, you belong to him. You don't belong to me, you belong to the shepherd. Now what has he done? What has the shepherd done to shepherd his sheep? First Peter chapter 5, I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder, this is Peter talking, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So how does Jesus Christ shepherd his church? He raises up pastors and he raises up elders. He raises up what you know, the theological term that we, we coined this is the under-shepherds. Jesus is the chief shepherd, and how does he shepherd his flock? He raises up men who would be shepherds to local bodies of believers, and they would shepherd, shepherd them and care for them. They would be examples to them, but they would shepherd them according to Jesus Christ's word, that we would just continually point you to the chief shepherd. We would feed the sheep, the word of the shepherd, we would protect the sheep from false gospels that the shepherd hasn't given, that we would feed and lead the sheep and protect the sheep. This is what he has done. This is how Jesus shepherds his church, shepherds his flock. He establishes all throughout the universal church in these local churches, these under shepherds who would shepherd the flock to lead it, feed it, protect it. It's not to boss people around. They're not the sin police, but they are examples to the flock to care for it to the extent that the great shepherd has cared for us. We see in Acts 20 that Jesus 
uh, or that um, Paul writing says, pay careful attention to the flock. And he says, Jesus Christ obtained it by his blood that he, this, this church was purchased by the blood of Jesus. And it's a reminder for those who are keeping watch over it and overseeing it that, hey, this, is, this cost Jesus his life. Handle it with care. Shepherd it with care. And he says, there's going to be wolves that rise up from within and wolves that try to come in from outside. That try to prey on the sheep and turn them to a different gospel. And last week we looked at Hebrews 13, um, that these shepherds, these elders, are going to give an account one day for how they shepherded. And we're going to have to do that whether we make any changes at all or whether we just keep on doing what we're doing. But regardless, we're giving an account. So our goal is we want to be as faithful as we can. I want to be able to stand before Jesus one day. This is, like I said, it keeps me up at night. I want to stand before Jesus one day and not say that it was perfect because it won't be, but I did all that I could do to care for the people that you've put into my care, to put into our care as the elders that have committed to one another. And we did all that we could to know them, to care for their souls, to check in on them, to do life with them, to watch over them, to feed them the word of God, to shepherd them according to the word of God, to lead them according to the word of God, and to point them to the work of God. I don't want to keep playing the game where a group of people that we don't know walks into a building and we preach a sermon and then they leave. That's not the church. And praise God that we have a group of incredible church members who want to be and do all that a church is and does. But in light of this, we give you a quick change that's going to happen in January. Um, in January, each of our elders are going to get a list of the members of this body. Why? To shepherd and care for you. And they're going to call you. And I want to encourage you, pick up the phone. They are not hunting for anything. They haven't heard anything. You're not in trouble. They want to know how you're doing and how we can pray for you and how we can minister to you and how we can care for you. Otherwise, what are we doing? Come get your spiritual pill for the week and go back to living your own life. No, we want to be a group of people who know one another and care for one another. So as they reach out to you, the first conversation might be awkward, but I promise you everyone after that is going to be totally fine. And they're literally going to ask, how can we serve you? How can we pray for you? What's going on in your family? We haven't heard anything. We're not hunting for anything or fishing for anything. We just want to know where you are, where the Lord has you, and how we can come alongside and watch over your soul and care for you. And church, that is a good thing. That is a great step in the right direction. So that we can know how to pray for you when we meet. That we can know how to... to handle different ministry needs within this body in this service, that our services are going to start to look differently, where we care for the members of this body, that I would love in the new year, if there's a new family that joins this church, some of you are like, I need to find out if I'm a member, if I'm going to get a phone call or not, uh, we can help you figure that out. But I would love when a family joins this church in January, when new families join this church, before we end the service, they're not going to have to give a speech, they're not going to have to say anything, but we are going to introduce them to the congregation and say, hey, they have made a covenant, they have committed to doing all of those one another's with you, and will you stand and receive them into the family, to this local body of believers? And we will get the church to audibly say, we will. And I'll say, before you head into the lobby, come down and meet this family. 
And how encouraging would it be for a new family to, to show up on a Sunday and to leave meeting 90% of our church? And how encouraging is for the church to see that, hey, God is still bringing people into the fold. And it's, and it's an opportunity for all of us to renew our commitment to all that we are going to be and do for one another. Does that make sense? But just know, if you get a phone call and you don't know who it is, it might be one of our elders or it's spam. Um, so um, the next one, we won't spend a lot of time on it, um, but it's a family. We've mentioned this a lot of times. The church is a body of members who serve one another, who are built up um, to, to encourage one another for the good of one another. It's a flock, and Jesus is leading his flock. And how does he do that? He equips these under-shepherds, but it is also a family, that there's a familial intimacy in the church. And there's tons of verses that I'll give you. Ephesians 1, that he predestined us for adoption as sons, that we are into the family of God. Romans 8, that we're all led by the Spirit of God and we're sons of God. We didn't receive the spirit of slavery, but we received the spirit of sonship, that we're adopted as sons. Here's what's crazy to think about, is your spiritual family is going to last a lot longer than your earthly physical family. That you and I are going to spend forever in heaven with all of our brothers and sisters in Christ, with our Father and with our brother Jesus Christ, we are going to spend forever in heaven with our spiritual family. That there's a familial intimacy here. That the way I love you is not the way I love people of other churches. Why? Because I've committed to be your spiritual brother and sister. And although theologically, yes, I'm their brothers and sisters as well, but there's a familial intimacy within this body. That we look out for one another like we would look out for our own brothers and sisters. Because we are. And this family is going to last eternally longer than our, even our physical familial relationships. That we have a greater blood that unites us. And it's not our earthly blood. It is Jesus' shed blood that unites us as family members. And we're going to do all that we can to be a family with one another. That we would have a familial intimacy this bond where we look out for one another. We don't show up here and we feel like strangers, but we feel like brothers and sisters who are gathered together. Another one is a bride. This is Ephesians 5, Romans 8. God is making us holy. This is the typical marriage passage. Um, what is Jesus, or what does Paul say that um, is just like the relationship between Jesus and his church? He says the relationship between a husband and a wife, that we are the bride of Christ. Jesus is um, the groom, Jesus has laid down his life for his bride. He has purchased her. And all throughout Ephesians 5, I would encourage you to read it, count how many times you see words like washed or sanctified or blemish or holy, that all throughout Ephesians 5, the purpose of Ephesians 5, husbands, indirectly, if you want to know what your purpose is as a husband, is to for the holiness of your wife, is to love her and lay down your life for her in a way that she would be holy unto the Lord is to create a home and create a marriage and create an environment where your, your wife can spiritually flourish and be all that she was meant to be under God. Jesus Christ shed his blood for the church to make us holy. That's why he died. He declares us holy when we put our faith in him and he puts a spirit in us to make us holy over time. So we are his bride and we are growing in holiness, which means... We're correcting one another, we're praying for one another, we're sharpening one another, we're discipling one another. Why? So that we will all be holy unto the Lord and grow in our holiness and our spiritual maturity. And in light of those things, 
I'll give you one announcement, and then we will end. Um, one of the things we've been thinking and praying through is that in light of the fact that we are one body, that we are one family, we are one flock that is committed to being and doing all that a church is and does, is one of the things that can indirectly happen is when you have two services, some of you instantly know where I'm going with this, you can almost create two congregations where we just become a service provider and we get the first group in and they hear the message and they leave and we get the second group in and they hear the message and then they leave. And one of the things that we really wanna prioritize moving forward is we want to be one family that gathers together, that worships together, that loves one another. Like I said, that changes our service flow where I'm cutting 20 minutes of the sermon so that we can be a church family, that we can introduce new members, that we can pray for one another and care for one another, that we can let you know when a member of the body is suffering, when they have a surgery coming up, when they have a procedure. And some of you are like, I don't know if I wanna be known that much. We're gonna ask before we say any of these things but I'm done just playing the spiritual game. We wanna be a family that looks out for one another and prays for one another and lays hands on one another when you have something significant going on in your life, when somebody loses a loved one. We wanna come around you as your brothers and sisters who have committed to being and doing all that a church is and does to carry the burden with you. I don't want it to come through an email. We wanna be the church, which means we wanna gather as one body. So. There's a lot of dominoes with that. If you remember, when we reopened after COVID, um, we had one service, but the downside of that is we had some incredible saints who spent a year that we were open with only one service and were in kids ministry every week, every week and never got to go to church for a year. Didn't go into a church service. Some incredible folks in this body went a year without worshiping. And we're not going back to that. I can promise you that. So one of the things we want to do, and this is where all the dominoes start to, to kind of build on each other, is in order to be a family, in order to care for one another, in order to give an account, we want to be a church family that gathers together, gathers as one body, as one family, as one flock, using our gifts to know one another and care for one another and serve one another. But in order to make sure that people are not missing the service every week, We've got to change how we do everything that happens over there as well. So let me just give you the plan. We've also got these cards in the lobby that you can grab one of these and get a summary of what I'm about to tell you. But starting in January, January 8th, first Sunday is Mission Church, we are going to move to one service at 1015. All statistics say if you're going to do one service, you do it in the 10 o'clock time frame, right? So the, those at the 11 don't feel gypped, and those at the 9 don't feel like you're waiting too long. But we're going to be at 1015. And in order to make sure that people aren't in kids' ministry every week and never get to be a part of this church, one of the other needs that we've felt and seen and heard in this body, um, I've been walking through First and Second Timothy just as a young pastor. Paul writes this letter to a young pastor who's pastoring at Ephesus, and you don't make it out of chapter 1 and early into chapter 2 when he's like, hey, I need you to teach the men. That one of the needs in this body as we've got some small groups that are doing this well, but we don't have a place where the men in this body can gather together around the word and can sharpen one another and care for one another and exhort one another and just spend time opening God's word with one another and growing together in it. Not another teacher up front who's doing all the talking and you sitting and listening, but where we can get in a circle and open our Bibles and learn 
And our women have been doing that phenomenally at Women's Bible Study. But one of the things we were thinking is, hey, if we're going to get the men to do that on a Sunday, then we're going to get the women to do that on a Sunday as well. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to gather at one service at 1015, but at 9 o'clock, at 9 o'clock every Sunday starting January 8th, we're going to have these equip classes for men and women and students and your kids. If your kids want to stay in kids' ministry, they can come at 9 o'clock. They'll have a class. We'll have classes for men to get around the Word together and grow together, grow in relationally with one another, but also grow spiritually together where anybody's welcome. And we sharpen each other in the Word. We're going to have classes for women to do that as well, and students are going to be doing that as well. Where We're all sharpening each other in the Word from 9 to 10, and then at 10.15, we are all going to come in here for the service. And just like we've done in the family services, we're going to do that first grade and up. So your kids can go to their normal kids' ministry at 9 o'clock, and we will all come in here together first grade and up in the service at 1015. It's going to be a shorter service, a much shorter sermon, and we're going to get to be a family where your children can read scripture and can pray with you as a family. We're going to have times of corporate prayer where we're going to ask you just to pray with your family about different needs, about other countries that don't know the Lord. And we want your children who have gifts, according to 1 Corinthians 12, to be a part of this body. We want to build in family discipleship to give fathers and mothers easy opportunities before we ever expect you to do it at home, to lead your children in a prayer where everyone else is doing it and it's not weird, where we can let your children watch us take communion and ask questions. And I don't say that this is, this is 100% the glory of God, God did it, this has nothing to do with me. We had a eight-year-old come down front last week and say she put her faith in Jesus in the sermon on the church. God is still in the business of saving children as they sit in here. And it might not seem like they're listening. It might not seem like they're, they're interested. But they need to see mom and dad lift their hands in worship. They need to see you on a regular basis. Open your word and submit your lives to God's word. And they're going to act like children, and we're totally okay with that. They can come in and color. They can do whatever they need to do. But we want to gather as a church family. And like I said, all of this is listed on this card. We've got them at Next Steps. You can grab one on your way out. Um, and we'd love to hear from you. If you're like, I hate that, what are you doing? Come talk to us. We'd love to talk to you. Send me an email. Come call me. Talk to me. Um, but we really do feel like, hey, if we are going to stand before the Lord and give an account, we want to give a faithful account and say, hey, we've done all that we can. Lord, I have tried all that I can do according to your word to care for this body and structure it in a way where we can actually know one another and love one another and shepherd one another and care for one another and bear one another's burdens and grow our kids into a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, show them the gospel and the word on a weekly basis and love them well and care for them. And the last metaphor is an embassy um, because the last thing I want us to think is what we're doing here is uh, if you've ever heard the, uh, you guys remember the snowstorm a couple years ago, the interview with the old lady um, who's, you know, the, the interviewer's asking her, uh, what are you going to do to survive the snowstorm? And she's like, I guess I'll just go home and get all fat and sassy and uh, says, it, it, it's one of, it went viral, all the things. But the last thing that I want us to do is to just to be one big family that just grows up and we just sit on our hands and we do nothing missionally. That the Bible doesn't use the word embassy, but if you read 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 
Jesus calls us, through Paul, calls us ambassadors. That what we are called here to do is to take this love, take this display of the gospel and the way we love one another and take it to the world. That we are his ambassadors. And it's going to be our love for one another that shows the world that we follow him. One of the tools of evangelism of the church is our love for one another. That when people that don't know the Lord come and gather with us and they see the way we love one another, they start to ask questions. They start to lean in. They start to get curious. The world doesn't love like that. Who in their right mind would cause you to love each other this way? And we point to him. We say the only reason we do this is because of him. 2 Corinthians 5, he has reconciled us to himself and he has given us a ministry of reconciliation. We are his ambassadors pleading to the world to be reconciled to God. That we gather here, we assemble here, we love one another, but we also scatter. And we're on mission as ambassadors. This world's not our home. This city isn't going to last. We have no lasting city. We seek the city that's to come. We're citizens of heaven. Right now, we are representing our home here on this earth. This is not our home soil. We belong to another world. We are ambassadors in a foreign land, showing and displaying the values of our homeland. Calling anyone who might want to join to come and be a part of God's reconciliation through Christ Jesus. Pleading with the world, be reconciled to God. He has reconciled us. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. We didn't create this love. We didn't create this family. He's done it, and he's inviting you to be a part of it. That's what we want to be. That's what we want to do. Amen? Let me pray. Like I said, these are in the lobby, and uh, we'll let you get out of here. Lord, we love you. God, thanks for your word. Father, so many metaphors. It is amazing to think about your church. God, there is nothing on earth like the church. We don't say that arrogantly. We didn't create it. We didn't come up with this. You did. There is no group of people in this world like the church. It is almost as if someone who is not of this world created it. So God, help us to love one another, to be and do all that we, all that you have called us to be and do as a church. And God, I pray for our church. I pray for our folks. God, I pray for each of us as we navigate change. God, that we would ask questions, that we would seek help, that we would give input and advice, that we would give warnings. God, ultimately, that our conversations would be glorifying to you. Um, but God, we would continue to follow after your word and where you're leading us to the glory of your name, not ours. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Church, if you've got questions, if you've never been reconciled to God, I will be down front. I would love to share the gospel with you and talk to you about what it means to follow Jesus. But like I said, we've got some of these cards at Next Steps. You can grab one of those as a reminder. Throw it on your fridge. Um, the form to sign up for one of those classes is on this card. And um, we'll jump back in and finish this series next week. We love you. You're dismissed. Yeah.